Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the LFC for this online event. My name is Sarah Ashwin and I'm a Professor of Comparative Employment Relations here at the London School of Economics. I'm extremely pleased to welcome Michael O'Leary and Warren Voldemis here to the LSE today. Michael was on the founding team of Bain Capital's Social Impact Fund. He has also served as an economic policy advisor in the United States Senate and on two presidential campaigns. Michael studied philosophy at Harvard College and earned his MBA from the Stanford Graduate School of Business. Warren leads a social impact fund that invests in the American workforce. He was previously a managing director with Bain Capital's Social Impact Fund and invested with the Bain Capital's private equity team for over a decade. Warren studied economics at Dartmouth College and earned his MBA from Harvard Business School. This evening's event will see Michael and Warren discuss their new book entitled Accountability, How Can We Save Capitalism? which offers a blueprint for everyone to take responsibility using their economic power as consumers, as investors, as employees, and as voters. The aim is to trigger a fundamental shift away from an economy that is unethical and unfair and destructive to our environment and institutions. For those Twitter users on, in the audience, the hashtag for today's event is hashtag LSE Capitalism. The online event is being recorded and will hopefully be made available as a podcast subject to there being no technical difficulties. Fingers crossed, everybody. Um, as usual, there will be a chance for you to put your questions to our speakers. To submit your questions, please use the Q&A feature at the bottom of your screen. Questions will be submitted to you, me, and I will pose as many as possible to the speakers. Please let us know your name and affiliation. We're particularly keen to hear from our students, our incoming students and our alumni. But now I'm absolutely delighted to hand over to Warren and Michael. Thank you, guys. Well, uh, thank you very much, uh, Sarah, and thank you uh, to all of you for having us um, in London, uh, at, at least uh, virtually. It's, it's a real honor to speak to the London School of Economics uh, today. Um, and uh, Michael and I were just joking uh, that as we're in London, um, Lehman Brothers, uh, the, um, you know, the bank that brought down the global financial system about a dozen years ago, actually had a very forward-looking corporate social responsibility program uh, in London. Uh, they actually did a, a mentoring programs at a number of schools. And ironically, um, uh, they uh, actually received a posthumous honor uh, after they had gone bankrupt and were nothing but a pile of ashes and lawsuits. Uh, they actually received a posthumous honor from a school in London uh, for their work mentoring uh, its children. And I think that the, the irony um, in that statement and the, and the irony uh, in, uh, in, in Lehman's statements uh, prior to their collapse, uh, they, they actually said in their uh, annual report, strong corporate citizenship is a key element of our culture. Where will you make your mark? At Lehman Brothers, that is what we ask of all of our employees. Now, they clearly left a mark, but I don't think it was the mark that they intended. Um, and this irony between corporate uh, stated intentions and corporate social responsibility uh, and, and, and what corporations actually, you know, the effect that they have on the world today is one of the things that we talk a lot about in, uh, in our book, Accountable. Uh, but maybe before uh, I hand it over to, uh, to Michael to talk a little bit more about uh, this irony, uh, I'll just quickly run through the premise uh, of our book. So we start from the perspective that capitalism uh, is, or at least has been, a massive force for good over a long period of time. So just consider this, uh, in the three millennia up to 1750, uh, GDP growth per capita was exactly 0%. Uh, since then, uh, GDP per capita has grown by 30 seven times worldwide. And so when you think of all the things, the, the benefits of the modern world, longevity, disposable income, um, abundant food, these things didn't happen by accident, they happened by capitalism. But uh, capitalism as practiced in the last several decades has gone dangerously off track and produced some very distorted results. 
uh, in the uh, city where Michael and I used to work in Boston, the life expectancy gap between adjacent rich and poor neighborhoods is 33 years. 33 years in 21st century America. It's an unbelievable statistic, and it's similar in other cities. And the corporation has a lot to answer for with, with regards to that statistic and, and many others. Um, it is our view that the corporation is the single most uh, important social institution uh, in the world today. Uh, we write in our book, think of how you spent your morning, that you may have woken up to a tune on your iPhone, Apple, the number four largest corporation in the United States, with cell service powered by AT&T, number nine. Your medicine may have come from CVS, number seven, distributed by McKesson, number six, paid for by United Healthcare, number five. You may have driven a GM, number 10, car to work, insured by Geico, owned by Berkshire Hathaway, number three, and fueled up Exxon Mobil, number two. On the way, you may have passed a Walmart, number one, and a Whole Foods owned by Amazon, number eight. All of that, that's the top 10, even before you check Google in line at Starbucks while taking out your Bank of America credit card. So corporations are everywhere uh, in our world today, but they are largely rudder rudderless and unaccountable from a social perspective. Uh, and we see today in this age of COVID in the United States with all the social dislocation and BLM that there is more than ever talk of good intentions at corporations. In fact, there's now 90 billion trillion dollars devoted to the UN PRI investment guidelines. And so you think with all the talk and the money going towards social things that we would have solved our problems already. But at its root, the corporation is still accountable really to only one stakeholder, and that is the shareholder. And as Michael will explain, it is that fact uh, that we need to address if we're going to hope for a better capitalism. Thank you, Warren. Warren mentioned that United Nations principles for responsible investment, the UNPRI. We're also coming up on the one-year anniversary of the statement on the purpose of the corporation from the Business Roundtable. The Business Roundtable made its announcement saying, the purpose of the corporation is not just to maximize profits for shareholders, it's also to serve all stakeholders, communities, employees, the environment. The problem though is if we're at the one year anniversary of that statement, we're also at the one year anniversary of the Council of Institutional Investors response. So the business roundtable in the US represents CEOs. Their statement had 181 leading CEOs in the country representing something like 30% of the market value of all US stocks. The Council of Institutional Investors represents asset owners pension funds, sovereign wealth funds. And they countered that if the business roundtable believed corporations should serve all stakeholders, that the business roundtable should remember that they are still accountable only to shareholders. In a capitalist economy, the capitalist is king. And so corporate leaders may aspire to virtue, but they are bound by a fiduciary duty to maximize profits. Any gestures at a broader social responsibility are only tolerated insofar as they are insincere. Now, there's nothing wrong with fiduciary duty in and of itself. Corporate managers should not benefit at the expense of shareholders. They shouldn't waste shareholder value on pet projects, empire building, expensive perks. But fiduciary duty was meant to be a set of guardrails on corporate behavior. Instead, it's become the sole purpose of a corporation. Fiduciary duty has become a sort of fiduciary absolutism, an ideology, where maximizing profits for shareholders is the only goal of the corporation, period. And so business leaders are faced with conflicting demands. On the one hand, from stakeholders, communities, consumers, employees, to do good. And on the other hand, from shareholders to drive short-term profits. And faced with these conflicting demands, business leaders have responded with a sort of rational hypocrisy, flip the marketing, but leave the underlying mission unchanged. And we're all living with the result. Corporate philanthropy like Lehman Brothers can generate good press and often does real good, but its scale is equivalent to less than one-tenth of 1% 1 of revenue at our largest corporations. 
environmental and social scoring metrics, they're proliferating, but there's very little correlation between one agency's ratings and another's. You can check for yourself. If you look up two lists of the world's most sustainable companies, you'll be lucky to find the same company on both lists. That doesn't happen with the biggest companies by market cap or by revenue. Warren mentioned the $90 trillion committed to the UN PRIs the principles for responsible investing, but recent research has shown that there is no difference in the actions of investors before they commit to the UNPRI and after. And there's no difference in the actions of investors who have signed those commitments and those who have not. And so in the fight to fix capitalism, in the fight to save capitalism, we are winning the battle of ideas, but we are losing the war of substantive action. Nine in 10 business leaders today say that serving stakeholders beyond shareholders is important, but 96% are happy with the job they are already doing for workers, communities, consumers, or the environment. And so we are seeing evidence of stakeholder capitalism everywhere but where it matters, in the lives of actual stakeholders. Capitalism doesn't have a publicity problem, it has a purpose problem. And to fix that, we need to hold corporations accountable to a purpose deeper than profit. So what, uh, what Michael just said um, can sound, in some years, radical. It can sound uh, new. But um, interestingly, if you actually look back at the origins of corporations, if you look back to the 18th century when, when the corporate form really emerged, you'd see that um, corporations had a, a responsibility back then to put their purpose into their charters. Uh, and um, the, you know, the, the idea was that the privileges of legal liability and legal person uh, legal personhood were only granted by the government in exchange uh, for corporations having uh, some reason to exist beyond just making money for their uh, for their shareholders. And actually, interestingly, in the U.S., uh, that uh, requirement still exists in form. So, in the Articles of Incorporation uh, for companies, uh, you still have to put your purpose. Uh, but today, most companies actually write that their purpose is to do what's legal in the state of Delaware which uh, isn't uh, particularly inspiring uh, a purpose and certainly not one that would have gotten by uh, scrutiny back uh, 250 years ago when the corporations were, uh, were first being reviewed in that way. Now, as mentioned earlier, corporations are the most important social institution in the world today. Uh, we believe they organize um, private interests efficiently and productively, but in many ways they're like powerful cars without steering wheels. Uh, and steering wheels once uh, were meant to be, uh, charters were once meant to be the steering wheels. Um, but today the, the, the purpose uh, of most companies rarely extends beyond banal mission statements or actually even um, mission statement, statement generators online that you can use to, uh, to, to pick a mission statement for your, uh, for your, for your company. Um, now, this is getting noticed by workers. So a survey of uh, 12,000 white collar workers uh, in the U.S. Uh, noted that 50% of them felt no affiliation uh, with their company's mission or reason for existing. 50% uh, of workers in the U.S. also say uh, that they are disengaged in their work. In fact, 13%, that's one in eight workers, is so disengaged, so disaffected by how they're treated, they actively work against the interests of the companies uh, that employ them. Uh, that's a roughly half a trillion dollar drag on the U.S. economy. Um, and I can assure you there's a ton of opportunity in addressing uh, worker uh, disengagement. In fact, that's what I'm doing now. I'm working in a social impact fund that is focused on activating workers. But um, I think corporations are beginning to notice uh, that um, this is an issue. Um, corporations continue to talk as if employees were their greatest asset, although uh, it's still something that you know, employees still only show up on the income statement. They don't show up on the balance sheet as an asset. So um, on the one hand, corporations talk in a certain way about employees, but when they're trying to meet their quarterly numbers, they act in a, in, in a very different way. Um, nonetheless, uh, there is evidence mounting out there. You, you see uh, reports uh, um, frequently and articles in the, in, in the news saying that ESG, environmental, social, and governance standards, you know, companies that are um, advanced on those dimensions um, have better performance over time. And I think Michael and I would agree with that. Um, our direct experience as um, you know, early impact investors is that 
you actually can drive more valuable companies by thinking about stakeholders in new ways and by looking at uh, companies in a longer term perspective. Um, nonetheless, uh, there, is, there remains this, this, this tension between what uh, corporations say they want to do and what stakeholders demand of them and what corporations actually do when they're trying to meet the demands of particularly short-term oriented stakeholders who are staring at next, uh, next quarter's profits. And so uh, but we, we firmly believe, and the reason why we wrote uh, Accountable is that you know, as these recent employee and consumer protests have shown, business leaders ignore these trends at their peril. And if we wanna save capitalism, capitalists are gonna have to do a much better job themselves. Not enough, though, just to put a new purpose into the charter, which is what we've seen some companies do, like the French food giant Danone, saying help through food for as many people as possible is now the, the purpose for that corporation around which all of their activities come. But what we need to make that purpose a reality in more companies are new and better ways to hold them accountable. And so let's get tactical for a second and talk about metrics. Over the last 30 years, we've seen immense growth in corporate responsibility reporting. If you look at the top 250 corporations in the world, 30 years ago, 20% of them had some sort of corporate responsibility reporting. Today, it's nearly universal. However, much of this data is self-reported and bespoke. It's unstandardized, it's difficult to aggregate, even in cases where it should be obvious, like carbon emissions. And in other areas, like social indicators, Researchers have found that 92% of what's measured is effort, not effect. It's policy rather than impact. And so you have corporations that will report that they have a diversity policy, but not on how diverse their workforce actually is. And so this first step of reporting on ESG is a start, but it's only a start. To hold corporations accountable to a purpose deeper than profit, we will will require expanded metrics by which to judge them. And that means metrics that are standardized, mandatory, and audited, just as our financial statements are. Until we do, we'll end up with the following, which captures just how confused the world of capitalist reform remains today. This past summer, the US Congress summoned the CEOs from four of the largest tech companies for a hearing. Their videos streamed live in the halls of Congress and across the world. The leaders of Amazon, Apple, Facebook, and Google were forced to answer for their alleged monopolistic practices and malign influence subverting our democracy. They were held up as emblems of unfettered capitalism run amok. Against this, the summer also saw surging interest in social impact and sustainability in the business world. Billions of dollars flowed into funds that invest only in companies with the best performance on environmental, social, and governance issues, so-called ESG funds. Only one problem. Check the top five holdings of ESG funds at BlackRock or Nuveen or Vanguard or any of the other major providers, and by God, there they are again. Amazon, Apple, Facebook, and Google. In the fight to reform capitalism, we can't even figure out who are the villains and who are the heroes. And so Lehman Brothers can win an award for its corporate social responsibility a year after it helps to bring down the global financial system. Until we can put purpose into a corporation's charter, hold it accountable to that purpose, and align its business model with its purpose, we'll continue to get what we've got, a thin veneer of stakeholder rhetoric painted over the cracked foundation of shareholder primacy. If we're gonna make meaningful progress in the fight to save capitalism, we'll have to do better than that. And with that, Sarah, we'd love to take some questions. Thank you so much for that absolutely fascinating presentation. It was great. So I'm gonna kick off the discussion with a couple of questions myself, and then I'll open the floor to questions. Please type short questions into the Q&A box and when you do so, remember to include your name and your affiliation. So I'll begin with my first question. So in your book, you make a strong case that business leaders and investors should lead the forms that you prescribe. So my question is, why trust the very people who have caused the problems to solve them? Why not use government? I don't know. 
<laughs> I don't know. You know, it, it's hard in the United States right now, given the political situation, to rely on government to solve some of these problems. In an otherwise unremarkable press release a few months ago from the Department of Energy, they started talking about natural gas as molecules of U.S. freedom, which is not quite the prelude to a carbon tax, which is one of that sort of price of externalities is one of the most basic functions that we see government being able to provide. And I think one frustration that Warren and I have had coming from the financial world, coming from the investing world, is what we call in the book, the billionaire cop-out, where you'll have these extremely powerful financial business leaders, people like Jamie Dimon and JP Morgan or Warren Buffett or uh, Ray Dalio at Bridgewater, extremely powerful people who will call, they'll write these wonderful tracks about how government needs to be doing more, about how government has left people behind, about how we need different tax policies, different sorts of investments. And it's hard not to look at that and say, how convenient that the one institution that does not require you to sacrifice is the one institution that has to solve these problems. For us, we look at, for, for a better model, we look at how certain companies have reoriented their businesses or certain investors have reoriented the way they invest so that if they believe in a certain set of issues, a certain set of values, and that governs the way they vote or the way they lobby or the way they donate money, that it also governs the way they invest, the way they build their companies. And so you know, we look at someone like Warren Buffett who cares deeply about the world, about society, about the environment. He's pledged to donate 99% of all his income, but he doesn't believe that corporations the right realm to be attacking these issues. I think both Warren and I would look at this and say, the problems we're facing are so great. Of course, we need government to be doing more in many ways. We can get into the specifics uh, on that. We list a lot of them in the book, but it's not enough to lean on government. Everyone in every aspect of their lives, including the economic, needs to be focused on what they can be doing more. Well, I just say that if, Sarah, to the extent that we have a, a system where everyone believes it's government's job and it's corporation's job to try to outfox government, and you have this sort of cat and mouse game that is constantly being played, certainly in the U.S., um, you end up with really, you know, corporations are usually one step ahead. Um, you know, so look at the example of, of CEO pay, which is something we talk about a lot. So the ratio of average CEO to average worker pay in the 60s was 20 to 1. It's now 300 to 1. And guess what's happened in intervening years? Um, there's been attempts to regulate CEO pay by forcing people to disclose it. Okay, so CEOs disclose their pay. What happens in a CEO negotiation? I can tell you for sure. No CEO opens a negotiation with, well, I'm bottom quartile, so that's fine. Um, everyone uses the average as a way to, to go up. Um, then um, uh, government said, okay, you can only deduct uh, CEO pay up to a million dollars from your taxes. And then guess what happens? CEOs get paid with stock options, which encourages the kind of short-term uh, behavior that we see. Uh, and so, uh, and, and it does nothing to curb the underlying problem. And so um, I think we need to move from a, a, a world where uh, government tries to regulate corporations and corporations operate as close to the line as they possibly can to one in which corporations actually take responsibility as well. Yeah, thank you. That's great. So um, I've got another question before I hand over to the audience, which um, comes from the other direction. So many people in the business world worry about the trade-off between doing good and doing well. How do you know that focusing on society and the environment is not going to come at the expense of investors? That's a, that's a great question. And I can, I can tell you, Sarah, um, as an impact investor, uh, when you go off and talk to somebody uh, out there in the world, you're either seen as a wolf in sheep's clothing or a sheep among wolves. No one believes that you can have a profit and give a value focus uh, and a social focus at the same time. They always assume you're, 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 you're faking it on one dimension or, or the other. Um, and I think that that's, that comes from this view uh, of sort of single variable optimization, this idea that uh, there's no way to walk and chew gum. You have to just focus on driving profits, and that's the only thing you can do. Uh, and if you don't focus on that solely, you're never going to build a viable company. I think that's just dead wrong. Uh, in fact, I know it's dead wrong because uh, you can't, no uh, board member, no CEO just tries to maximize enterprise value. That's what they wake up every morning thinking about. To do it properly, you have to actually think about lots and lots of things. 
Um, just like when you raise your family, you're not optimizing on any one dimension. You're actually trying to balance many dimensions. And so uh, I think there's just a, a misunderstanding out there that's the whole single variable thing, which I think dates back to Milton Friedman's article 50 years ago, almost exactly 50 years ago, uh, 50 years and three days ago, uh, when he said that the social responsibility of business is to increase its profit. I think that was one of the most pernicious ideas uh, that, uh, that, uh, that has really led, led us to where we are today. If you go back to when Friedman was writing that article, we were speaking a little bit about this before we, before we came on, you know, 85% of the market value of the S&P 500 was in physical assets, physical assets listed on the balance sheet. Today, that ratio is flipped. And so now 15% of the value in the S&P 500 is in physical assets, but 85% is intangible. And the way you maximize intangible assets is exactly as Warren described. It's in how do you motivate attract, retain the best talent. It's how do you build trust and goodwill with your customers, good relationships with regulators, with your suppliers. And if you're focused on, on that, on those intangibles, then this idea that you can best motivate people by telling them your work every day, the sole purpose of your job, the sole purpose of this corporation is to maximize profits for some shareholder you have never met. That is not the way you build prosperous companies today. And I think that's why you see in Silicon Valley in the U.S., but, but even in old corporations, corporations that have been around for 100, 150 years, like Unilever, like Danone, uh, that they're trying to build themselves around a deeper purpose than profit, not at the expense of profit. You know, when Danone put in their mission statement, in their charter, help through, help through food to as many people as possible, they weren't saying, and that's going to come at the expense of shareholders. They're saying, and, and we think that by doing that, we'll be able to build the most prosperous company over the long term. But the last example I'll give is, is CVS, which is a pharmacy chain in the U.S. They were trying to reposition, become more of a health-focused brand. So not just a convenience store where you can pick up your medication, but really focused on health. And as part of that, they realized that they can't be focused on health and get the trust of their consumers if they're also selling cigarettes behind the counter. But they were selling a lot of cigarettes, billions of dollars of cigarettes a year. And so it, was, it came at a real short-term cost to stop selling. I think merchandise sales fell by 8% in the quarter. They, they stopped selling cigarettes. But when they had their eye on the horizon of what will create the most prosperous company over the long term, and therefore what's in the best interest of our shareholders over the long term, it required taking little hits like that so they could reposition the brand around a deeper purpose that attracts customers and employees alike. Thank you. That's really interesting answers there. Right. Now I've got a question from the audience. So this is Nikhil Shenoy. Hope I pronounced your name correctly. Who's on our very own MSc in Management of in Information Systems and Digital Information in my Department of Management. Um, so the question is, how does one hold large corporations responsible for their actions, considering that such large companies have enormous lobbying powers with governments the world over? Great question. It's a great, it's a great question. And, and one big area you're seeing right now in the U.S., you know, shareholders have the right to put forward proposals in the shareholder meeting they'll be voted on. And, and one big area, that we, we've seen some shareholder actions around things like climate or gender pay parity. Uh, in the US, we have what's called say on pay, and so shareholders can vote on executive compensation packages each year. One big area you're starting to see is on lobbying disclosure. Because hypothetically, these corporations are lobbying on the behalf, in the best interest of shareholders, and yet they don't even tell shareholders what it is they're lobbying about. And so we're starting to see shareholders who, you know, I think it's in some ways, we've misdrawn the battle lines of capitalism, where one way we often tell the story is that since Milton Friedman's article, shareholders have won at the expense of stakeholders. And, and one thing that framing misses is the median shareholder in America, and I'm sure it's similar in the UK, the median shareholder in America is something like 60 years old, 50 years old with $60,000 in a retirement account. So their best interests are not served by the sorts of malign lobbying that you're describing in the question. And, and so I think what we're starting to see is, is these institutional investors take responsibility, push corporations to actually disclose things like lobbying and actually work in the best interest of shareholders, of mom and pop retail investors. My favorite example recently being Rio Tinto, big mining company has come under a ton of fire recently uh, because they in Australia, in the um, 
process of building a new iron mine, destroyed a 40,000-year-old Aboriginal site. And what's remarkable about this story is that there was not just protests from you know, the citizens of Australia or even from the government, but it was investors who went into an uproar. You know, the board of directors initially said, you know, we'll dock the CEO's bonus this year. You know, we're not going to give them his full bonus this year. And the shareholders said that is not enough. This is an incredible breach of trust. And the result has been because of that shareholder revolt, revolt the CEO has lost his job. His two top deputies who are overseeing this have lost their jobs. And so my hope is that just as we're seeing consumer movements and employee movements, we're also seeing investor movements start pushing corporations to be more responsible, more sustainable. But I, I just add, though, to go back to the, to the specific question that Akhil had, if we don't find a way to do better on measurement of ESG, uh, going back to Michael's point earlier, um, you know, the irony of picking up the four people who are hauled in front of Congress um, as the top ESG performers, if we don't figure out how to do metrics that are simple, uh, intuitive, and compulsory, um, then it's going to be really hard to hold corporations to account. And, and frankly, uh, it's, it was really interesting. I was talking to a relatively hard-nosed hedge fund guy the other day, and asking how did he, how did he look at ESG stuff, and he said, "I would love to have great measures of employee health. I think that's an investable uh, piece of information if I knew it." But I, can't, I don't trust any of the ESG providers today, and I can't call companies to ask them questions, ask their employees questions because of MNPI issues, non-public information issues. And so I'm flying blind on employees. And so I really think that there's a big thing here. If the business roundtable and all these groups that are talking about you know, doing more for stakeholders, if they're serious, they'll help create intuitive, simple, compulsory standardized ESG metrics. Ah, well, that actually leads very nicely into our next question that comes from Diana Sosa. She's doing an MSc in the psychology of economic life. And her question is, what are the most used frameworks for measuring impact, especially to measure real change impact and not just intentions? Is there a standardized methodology? Well, uh, unfortunately, Diana, there isn't a standardized methodology. There are lots of projects going on in different places. Um, you know, one of the more, um, you know, one of the more prominent ones in the U.S. is called SASB, the Sustainability Account Sustainable Accounting Standards Board, which is self-consciously named after the Financial Accounting Standards Board, with the idea that they're going to create standards that will ultimately be enforced by the SEC, um, which would be a fantastic thing. The problem is, they're in this impossible position between trying to come up with simple standards that work and trying to address the needs of the corporations that, um, uh, that they're trying to get to sign on to this stuff. And the result has been a proliferation of, uh, of different standards depending on what you opt into, which industry you opt into. And so there's a super complicated um, uh, a system that they've adopted in trying to attract people in because every company says, I'm different, I need my own standards. Uh, and, and so uh, that goes against uh, the idea of um, standardized things, just like we have for accounting. And so, uh, unfortunately, Diana, at this moment, we do not have any reliable measures that are widely used. And we certainly don't have any um, uh, reliable measures that are widely used and enforced, in other words, um, regulated. Uh, and so that's the place where we need to go. And I, unfortunately, I think we're still a ways away. But we've solved this problem before. You know, during the Great Depression, we did not have standardized accounting. Uh, and uh, it took the private sector to go and fix that problem. Uh, and uh, hopefully uh, we will uh, make some progress now, given all the catalysts that are out there and, and people making pious statements. I would just say you know, this is part of the reason why a company like McDonald's can win from Ethisphere Magazine, win the, the most ethical company in the world award. A couple of years ago, they won that award, which is remarkable for a company which the more you eat their core product, the sicker you get. And it's anything's because things like that, I've got no doubt that they truly earned that award based off of the metrics that Ethisphere Magazine was tracking uh, in the same way that, that based off the metrics that MSCI tracks or BlackRock tracks that Facebook and Google and Amazon deserve to be the top holdings of their ESG funds. The problem is that it is already monumentally difficult to get everyone to report on the effort they're making, on their policies. If you look and, and say, I just want to know the, the simplest one, 
carbon emissions or the simplest thing, you know, what do you pay your workers? Or what's the diversity is a big issue in the US but also worldwide. What's the diversity of your workforce? And companies oftentimes have this data, but they're not used to reporting it. And when they do, it oftentimes comes in two separate reports. My favorite example uh, from, from the book uh, that Orr and I had put in there is of Goldman Sachs in the US, where Goldman Sachs will issue two separate reports, a sustainability corporate social responsibility report and a report for shareholders. And in the social responsibility report, they'll talk about their 10,000 women initiative, which it, it truly does great work. It's a partnership with the World Bank. It's investing in female entrepreneurs around the world. It's an incredible program that you know, we would both support. But if you then look at their annual report to shareholders, the terms women, female, gender come up in exactly one context, which is in relations to a gender pay parity lawsuit in the UK for not paying women at the same rate that they were paying men. And I think it's this, this bifurcation of corporations, this sort of schizophrenia where they're either talking about what they do as their core business, where they're talking about the good that they do separately that has to end. And, and the way we get those two things to align, I think is as Warren was saying, focus on measuring actual impact of your products, your services, the impact you're actually having. And the only way we can get towards that is having more standardization, uh, which, which doesn't have to be led by government, you know, the story that Warren was describing after the Great Depression, a lot of that was led in conjunction with industry. Great, thank you. Well, that also leads nicely into the next question, which comes from Becca Dar, who's an MBA graduate from the University of Michigan, and I think currently in Maine, USA. So this is, the question is, what are your thoughts on the SASB's framework as a start to standardization of reporting by industry, at least in the USA. Larry Fink of BlackRock asked in his annual letter this year for all portfolio companies to start reporting using that and other carbon frameworks. So that's, you know, a question about a specific framework, I guess. No, it's, 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 yeah, that's, the, that's the framework that yeah. we're beginning to refer to. And, and I think it's, a, it's as good a start as any. The one thing that gave me heart was I spoke about the, the business roundtable statement in our remarks um, and, and not to be outdone, the World Economic Forum a few months later last winter had the Davos, the Davos Manifesto, which essentially said the same thing. Corporations should serve all stakeholders, including shareholders, but, but should serve all stakeholders. And, and one thing that I liked about what the World Economic Forum did is they then followed that up with a few months later with a report called something like toward a common set of metrics where they used, so SASB is one reporting framework, uh, GRI, the Global Reporting Initiative is another, and they tried to issue, you know, as the World Economic Forum, here's the metrics we think all corporations should start reporting on. They did this in conjunction with the four major global accounting firms. And so I think we were at the very early days, but starting to see people coalescing, SASB has gotten more traction than most. And I think for, for folks who aren't familiar with it, one way that it stands out is it says, for each industry, the core issues are different. Data privacy matters a lot if you're a bank uh, or if you're a, you know, an online search company like Google. Doesn't matter so much if you're a mining company. And similarly, you know, emissions matter a lot if you're a mining company, oil and gas company. Don't matter that much if you're a tech company. And so let's focus on, by industry, let's focus on what are the key variables, the key metrics that matter. And I think that's gained a lot of traction because when you look at the world through that lens, you also see that those are the sorts of metrics that also drive financial performance. You know, a, a tech company focusing on data privacy is extremely important to its core business. And so it, it makes more sense for them to focus on that sort of issue in line with SASE's framework than it does for them to focus on, uh, you know, becoming carbon neutral, also important, but not, not the core impact they have on the world. Do you want to add anything, Warren, or... No, I just say that, um, I, I'll go back to what I said earlier, the, the, the tension there, of course, is um, if, if each company, if we're trying to figure out materiality for, for each company, you risk um, kind of creating a system that's fairly complicated. Um, and, and the truth is, um, one of the things that we've learned uh, as we've studied um, you know, these ES, ESG issues is there really are only three or four or five critical issues. Um, you know, a climate is clearly one of them. Uh, workers is clearly one of them. And there may be one or two more, uh, but there is no reason in my mind why every company shouldn't report on its own workforce's health. Um, and frankly, there's no reason why every company shouldn't also report on its climate emissions um, in a standardized format. 
Um, and th neither of those things is actually that hard to do. Um, but people throw up all kinds of smoke screens and say, oh, geez, I'm different. Um, and so you end up in this world where uh, everyone's sort of pigeonholed in their own little space. And so uh, while there's room for, I think SASB's got some real benefits to it, uh, at, to what Michael said, I do think that um, it would be really helpful if we could just pick three or four issues and nail them with simple metrics for all companies. Great, thank you. So I've got a question coming in from Manish in Bangalore, India. Is there some kind of universal approach in terms of checks and balances that could be proposed to check the aspects of capitalism that we as consumers um, and our interests can be in safe hands rather than be exploited by their practices? So I think Manish is looking for some kind of universal approach to checks and balances. Well, it's, it's interesting because um, when, uh, you know, again, in the U.S., there's a, there's a, a company called Just Capital, uh, and it's a, it's, it's a not-for-profit. And what it does is it tries to go and get the voice of individual citizens and ask them, what do you care about? when it comes to corporate responsibility. And again, there ends up being a fairly short list. They've, they've, I think they've surveyed over 100,000 people now, and they do a survey every year. Uh, and the things that come up are, uh, pretty reliably, workforce issues as the number one issue, followed by uh, consumers, uh, basically uh, fair treatment of consumers, uh, followed, I think, by community issues, uh, you know, being respectful of the communities that you operate in, and then followed by environmental issues. Um, and so, and, and those things, you know, the same things come up again and again. Now they have some double clicks of that. They have some additional detail about which individual things within those buckets matter most. Um, and so when we talk about um, creating standardized uh, ESG metrics, at least when I talk about that, what I mean is trying to get companies to report on those issues. And the, and the reason why reporting is so important is because it matters less where companies are today than what trajectory they're on. Um, and frankly, um, the only way you can actually truly know what it means to invest in your workforce is to have a reliable measure and then go and compare how that measure moves to things like productivity, to things like cost of capital, to things like you know, all the other things that businesses uh, care about and shareholders should care about, long-term you know, long oriented shareholders. And so the starting point has to be some stake in the ground on metrics. Um, what we're doing in, in, in my uh, new business is we're focusing on workers. And we're trying to go really deep just on that one issue so that we can understand the linkages between enlightened practices, the creation of good jobs, and driving long-term value at companies. Because there's clearly a relationship, but it's poorly understood. Um, and we feel like uh, we can add a lot by going and implementing those kinds of, you know, enlightened practices at our portfolio companies. Now, I want to bring up, you know, we, we were talking about consumers. Uh, for a moment, I want to come back to a question you'd asked early on, Sarah, about how do you know that caring about the environment or caring about society is not coming out of the pocket of shareholders? And I think one thing that, that Warren and I really focus on the book is that you know, there's this question, is there a trade-off between doing well and doing good? We as consumers, as employees, as voters, we get to set the parameters on what successful strategy looks like. And with something like fair trade, for instance, or organic, when consumers decide that organic is important, that means that it is more profitable for companies to focus on organic foods than non-organic, with the best evidence being that the biggest organic retailer in America today is not Whole Foods, but is Walmart, you know, these big box stores. And, and it's Walmart because Walmart realized that they can charge a little bit more for organic. Consumers are willing to spend a little bit more for that label. And I think the consumer trend you see across generations, you know, one interesting thing about writing this book uh, as co-authors, I'm kind of a median millennial right in the middle of the millennial generation wars and Gen X. And you can see as you look across generations, you can see how views on these issues change. Uh, as a good example, you ask folks, you know, are environmental and social factors important in investing? If you ask, baby boomers, maybe three out of 10, four out of 10 might say it's important, though they'll often think of it in terms of, um, you know, this means not buying tobacco, or they'll think of it in terms of, oh, I might lose a little money, but it's worth it for my morality or something. But as you go down to younger and younger generations, once you get down to millennials and Gen Z, it's near unanimous that of course sustainability is important. And part of this, I think is 
uh, due to the success of the divestment movement, which we have a whole chapter on the divestment movement, whether or not divestment really is the most effective way to fight climate change. Uh, but what is done extremely effectively is it is brought to the fore of the entire generation's mindset, the idea that you express your values and how you invest. And there's no escaping that. And so going back to the question, I think, you know, it's up to us as retail investors, as employees, as consumers, as voters to set what the parameters of business strategy looks like. And, and in some ways, while, while, you know, we can hope for better laws, better trade agreements, they govern a lot of this, it, it, it's also falling on us as employees and as consumers to help dictate what sorts of strategies are successful. Well, it's interesting, Mike, Mike, Michael, uh, it was nice of him to refer to me as Gen X here. He normally calls me a uh, middle-aged reactionary uh, because I think, in, I think in, in Michael's view, it was my generation that, uh, that caused the problem and his that has to clean it up, which I, mean, I think there's a, 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 a fair point. Um, but, but, it's, but, but if you kind of take, if you play the game of extremes, you know, imagine if you're Gazprom in Russia. Uh, you know, are you, are you, is it really in, in your enlightened self-interest to have very strong environmental practices? You know, pr probably not because neither government nor consumers nor investors are likely to punish you. But, um, but, in, uh, but, 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 but if Gazprom is operating in the United States or in the UK or somewhere else in Europe, you know, we as citizens have the right to penalize them for those uh, behaviors, not just through government, um, uh, but through, uh, if you're a worker there, I mean, workers uh, in, uh, in, in the UK and in North America are increasingly having a much louder voice uh, when they see things in their companies they don't like. Uh, consumers have a much louder voice uh, today than they've had uh, in, a long, in a long time. Uh, and investors, uh, you know, both I think Michael and I are, are evident, evidence that there's a growing group of investors that care about uh, social issues and thinking long-term, by the way, and not just social issues, but also thinking long-term that are um, helping to shape uh, the terms of competition which I think is critical. Great. Well, I've got another question from um, Chandra Roxanne, who's doing um, an MSc in Economy, Risk and Society here at LSE. She comes from, or he or she comes from uh, Connecticut in the USA. Um, so the question is, what are a few tangible examples of capitalism functioning in a socially conscious manner? What would that transition entail? So I think few tangible examples for Chandra. Yeah, absolutely. Well, as a fellow Connecticut resident, hello. Um, I, I, my favorite example, maybe from the book, is the example of Earnin, which is a tech company uh, based out in San Francisco. And, and it's my favorite example because it's so counterintuitive. Earnin is trying to be a socially responsible payday lender. Let's think in for a second. Payday lending in the US is highly regulated state by state, because it has been such a malicious influence in so many people's lives. We, we've got this state where you know, people are living paycheck to paycheck, something like four out of five Americans live paycheck to paycheck, something like two out of five Americans couldn't come up with $400 in an emergency. And the payday lending industry takes advantage of that. And they'll trap people in these cycles of debt where they're paying the equivalent of 200, 300% annual interest rates. They'll pay hundreds of dollars more in interest than they take out as a loan. And so against this comes a company called Earnin. And here's their business model. Is they said, there's so much risk of taking advantage of these uh, users, of, of the people who need payday loans. To, because you know they're in desperate straits. You can always charge them a little bit more, give some little hidden fee that they won't understand. So instead, what we're going to do is we will give you an advance on your paycheck. We, we will plug into the time and attendance system at your company so we know roughly how much you've worked. We know roughly how much you'll get paid. Uh, at the two-week pay cycle. But after you've earned a certain number of hours, if you want your paycheck, we'll give it to you. And we'll give it to you for free. No fee, no interest payment. But if you think you get value from the platform, you can pay it forward and you can give an optional tip. And that's the entire business model, an optional tip. And the remarkable thing is, you know, this is the financial industry in general, the payday industry specifically is an area with very little trust between the general public and the corporations, rightly so. And here comes a business model built entirely on trust where they put all of their faith into the consumers to make their business model work. And they're rewarded in exchange. 80% of users tip. They tip something like three, four, 5% on average. And as a result, Earn has been able to raise something like $100, 200000000 million in capital from uh, top tier Silicon Valley VCs 
as hopefully this big disrupting force in the payday lending industry. An industry that I should add has been unsuccessfully regulated across states in the US for almost the entire history of the US and across the world for millennia and uh, trying to cap interest rates. And so I think that that's one tangible example, but there are others and you know, we another um, one, Warren, I don't know if you want to talk about uh, yes. the sustainable strip mine. My, yeah, my favorite uh, example is uh, we start the very first chapter of the book with um, a socially responsible strip mine. Uh, so that's another one you can let sink in. Um, if you're a, uh, if you travel in the, um, uh, in the impact investment circles, uh, that, that is guaranteed to generate at least uh, some puzzled looks. Um, and, but what's interesting about this uh, particular business, family owned, uh, passed down through many generations. Uh, and their view is uh, we are part of a, a community that we are going to be living in for a long, long time. We want to hand this uh, business down. And so our practices uh, in terms of workers, in terms of environmental sustainability, will be second to none. Uh, you know, for example, when they shuttered a site um, uh, a few years back, uh, they got won all kinds of awards um, you know, in competition with companies much bigger than themselves for restoring the site to a state of nature. Um, and, and, and the CEO's uh, refrain on that is, I hunt in these forests, I fish in these waters, um, this is where I want my kids uh, to, to play, this is where my, uh, my um, neighbors and, and, and employees work, you know, live and, 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 and uh, recreate. And so uh, this is uh, just thinking longer term. And by the way, the, 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 the mineral they mine called kyanite, if you uh, drive a Tesla, uh, if you drive any car, uh, you uh, are dependent on what this, uh, this mine produces. So the world needs this strip mine. But if the world needs a strip mine like this, it should be run by people like this. Uh, and that example, I think, is one that uh, gives me heart uh, because uh, I think that it shows that responsible principles can be applied to just about any business. Yeah, and why is it that if you pull people, three out of four people trust the local shopkeeper, but only one out of four people trust large corporations? And I think it's is it principles like that, that the locally owned small businesses, they don't think of externalities in the same way. You know, if they pollute the river, it's their river that they pollute. If they hire or fire workers, it's their neighbors or their neighbor's kids that they are hiring or firing. And so, you know, you go back to this concept of the invisible hand, Adam Smith's Wealth of Nations. Adam Smith is writing at a time when nearly all economic activity was happening in small local shops. You know, the economy looked local. Uh, simple in some ways compared to the global financial capitalism we have today. We think the way to get, to get back there is not by destroying big companies, but by putting purpose back into them and making that the through line that, that kind of reconnects corporations to their deeper purpose. Perfect. Okay, I've got two questions now from Paul McAllister, who is President Global Leaders in Unity and Evolvement USA. So the first one is whether there's a tendency for some industries to be more value-oriented than others. And the second one is, how can non-profit organizations partner with corporations to save capitalism? Well, that's a, that's a good question, uh, Paul. Uh, on the first one, um, are some industries more likely to be virtuous than others? It's, it, it's funny because there's a reason why Facebook, uh, Amazon, Google, why these companies rise to the top of ESG ratings. And that's because these companies are enormously profitable and, and have you know, um, the cash uh, to invest in things like environmental sustainability and lots of nice benefits and lots of nice perks for their workers. And so, um, and, so and, and often you'll hear uh, folks in other parts of the economy say, well, I don't have that luxury. Um, you know, um, and so uh, I think today there's certainly, it certainly is the case that the more profitable and the more tech-oriented a company is, the more likely they are to be um, socially responsible. Um, but the thing that, that I've learned um, over the, you know, now several years of doing investing in, in, in responsible uh, businesses is that the principles of thinking a little longer term apply to just about every business that I can think of. Um, and, 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 the, and the interesting thing is um, too many businesses start with um, strategy as their starting point. Um, but to go back to our comments on charters and mission statements, purpose is really the capstone of what a company's you know, North Star should be. Uh, and when you know what your purpose is, it's clarifying in so many ways. Um, 
the, the effort behind crafting a true mission statement, not going online and getting a mission statement, statement generator, but actually figuring out what you really want to put into your charter when you do that work is hard work. Um, but uh, when you do it, it is massively clarifying. Uh, and it informs everything that you do afterwards, and it makes you into just a much better company. I might say, I'm going to take a slightly different angle on the, on the Google Facebook one, which is, I think, another reason why you see them uh, kind of at the forefront of many of these movements is because they are in an absolute war for talent, for engineers. You know, there's this big dearth of computer science majors and, and, uh, and engineers in the U.S. They're in a war for talent. And so one of the reasons why they have such nice perks at their home offices, but also why they, they take the lead on a lot of these issues around social responsibility and sustainability is because that's what employees are demanding. But, uh, if, uh, there's a good example in Boston, where we both used to work, of the online furniture retailer Wayfair, where Wayfair had sold something like $100,000 of beds, bed frames to uh, border detention centers in the U.S. So the centers that were holding... Uh, legal migrants um, for, uh, for processing. And once the employees found this out, they were horrified. They were horrified and they staged this huge walkout. It's a mass amount of horrible publicity uh, for Wayfair. And the, and the CEO said, oh, well, you know, this is an issue for, for politics. You know, this isn't, we're just a company. We sell to any legal buyer. This isn't, we're trying to stay out of the political question. And that is increasingly an untenable position. Warren Center remarks, business leaders ignore these issues at their peril. So I think one thing you're seeing now is what industries, what companies are adapting faster. It's those ones that are beholden to stakeholder groups that are demanding it. Right. Well, I think we've got time for one more question before we sadly have to wrap, wrap up. So that question's coming from Philana Grant, who is a graduate in international economics uh, relations from the American University and currently a data analyst consultant. So is there a need to create better incentive structure to achieve corporate environmental social responsibility or will creative destruction render many of these corporations extinct? So I think it's, you know, I, I don't know whether the question means a legal incentive structure, but it, I'll leave it to you guys to interpret Falana's intentions it's a great question. And I think one way when, when people talk about the ways in which, you know, these, these long-term correlational studies, they'll say, if you look back over the last 30 years and you try and correlate social and environmental performance against financial performance, and you see in most cases a positive relationship that the companies that score better on ESG ratings or rankings also tend to do better financially over time. You know, there's a correlation there. And people are trying to identify what is the mechanism that connects those two things? Why is it the corporations that care more tend to do more over the long term? And I think people tend to focus on things like regulation, that if, if you take two identical companies today and one is reliant on uh, energy sources that release a lot of carbon and one is not, that there's a huge risk to investing in that first one because if a carbon tax were to be enacted under a Biden administration, for example, that that company will suddenly have a huge liability. And there's not a 100% chance that liability, but there is some significant chance liability is coming. So people tend to focus on regulation as a mechanism. But I think the, the great point in this, in this question is that there's also the risk of technological disruption. Where I look at, you know, I'd gone to Stanford Business School. I know a lot of entrepreneurs. You know, entrepreneurs are focused on areas where they can both create a successful business model, but also disrupt uh, companies that are doing harm to the world. And so I think you're on notice if you're in a corporation that is destroying value for the environment or for stakeholders, that there are hungry entrepreneurs and VCs and impact investors out there who are going to be trying to unsee you, not through the long arm of government, by creating a better, more profitable product. And I just, I just add to that that um, we're seeing now that companies are getting better at going on offense with regards to these issues. Um, and I think there, there are real efforts and, you know, across uh, the economy now for people to you know, make real investments in workers, make real investments in figuring out how you can not only be more socially responsible, uh, more environmentally responsible, but how you can show that uh, to your suppliers and to your, cut, your, you know, your, cut, your customers. And so I, I think that there's a real opportunity to go on offense. And I think people are doing that. Um, and so uh, I, I feel like um, there's a lot of reason for hope. 
I also feel like um, it's really important that the, at this moment in time, at this big inflection point, I think in the history of capitalism, that we notch up some lasting gains, uh, that, um, that we really do, we don't leave this sort of COVID period and this period of dislocation without um, you know, comprehensive measurement, I think as a start, and without more corporations um, expressing their purpose more clearly. Um, and so I, I think it's happening, but uh, I wish it were happening a little bit quicker. And I'd, I'd just like to close by saying, um, you know, we, we've quoted Adam Smith a couple of times here, and I think everyone loves to talk about Adam Smith's invisible hand. Uh, but before he w wrote the, um, the Wealth of Nations, he wrote The Theory of Moral Sentiments. Uh, and uh, one of his statements in that book was, the wise and virtuous man is at all times willing that his own private interest should be sacrificed to the public interest. Um, and so Adam Smith, the so-called the so father of modern capitalism, very much had a social-minded agenda. Uh, and I think at the end of all of this, you, get a, you have to ask yourself the question, what sort of a world do you want to participate in building? Um, and so we, uh, we closed our book with this notion of cathedral thinking, of, of, of helping to work towards things uh, that'll be there after you're gone uh, and things that you're proud of. And so um, I, I hope, first of all, I hope folks will, will, will have a look at our book. Um, and uh, I really enjoyed the debate, um, but at least uh, I hope uh, some among you, it sounds like many of you are already doing this, will, uh, will think in that sort of cathedral timeframe uh, as, uh, as we, I think, are learning to do ourselves. Well, thank you so much, Warren and Michael, for an absolutely fascinating hour listening to you. It was wonderful. We really enjoyed it. Thank you to our audience members for joining us. Thank you for the absolutely great questions. And just a reminder that the details of the book Accountable can be found on the event listing. Thanks again for joining us for this.